It's a provocative, and, and I find it a well-argued uh, case, against intellectual property laws. Uh, the co-authors are Michelle Boldrin and David Levine. Uh, Professor Levine was here about two and a half years ago for a, a conference we had called uh, Copyright Controversies, and the book was a work in progress at the time. Uh, as a draft then, and now in its final form, you can find it on the web, consistent, I think, with the author's uh, opinions of, of uh, what should be done with information. Just search against intellectual monopoly, and you can, you can turn it up as well as past versions. Uh, of course, if you enjoy having a real book in your hands, you saw it for sale out there, and it'll be for sale after the program upstairs. We'll hear first today from Michelle Boldrin, the co-author of the book, then get astute comments from Rob Atkinson. Uh, we'll may, we may do some discussion, but then we'll throw it out to you for some Q&A before we conclude with sandwiches upstairs in the Winter Garden. Uh, let me turn now to the formal introductions of the two uh, discussants today. Michelle Boldrin is Joseph G. Hoyt Distinguished Professor of Economics in Arts and Science in Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research in London. He's an associate editor of Econometrica, an editor of the Review of Economic Dynamics, and an advisory editor of Macroeconomic Dynamics, which is published by Cambridge University Press. His research interests include growth, innovation, and business cycles, intergenerational and demographic issues, public policy, institutions, and social norms. Co-author, co-editor of four books, and he's published in leading journals such as the American Economic Review, the Review of Economic Studies, the Journal of Political Economy, and I could go on. In case it hasn't become clear to you yet, he's an economist. Rob Atkinson is the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, based here in D.C., and he's the author of the State New Economy, I'm sorry, the, uh, yes, author of the State New Economy Index series, and the book, The Past and Future of America's Economy, Long Ways of Innovation that Power Cycles of Growth. Before founding ITIF, Dr. Atkinson was vice president of the Progressive Policy Institute, director of PPI's Technology and New Economy Project, where he wrote numerous research reports on technology and innovation policy issues, some of which I think were pretty good. Thank you. That's high yeah. praise. Yeah. <laughs> He's a board member and advisor to various groups, including the Alliance for Public Technology, the Information Policy Institute, the Internet Education Foundation, the Nano Business Alliance, and the Net Choice Coalition, among others. I've, I've joked about this with Rob before, and he's a, he's a good friend who takes these well. Uh, he used to work for the Office of Technology Assessment, which was one of the few agencies that the Republican Congress in 1994-95 uh, got rid of. And on that basis, I've wondered aloud before whether we might get him hired onto the Transportation Security Agency so that maybe the Congress would go after those folks as well. We'll hear from Rob after Michelle Boldrin. Please welcome the co-author of the book, Michelle Boldrin. Uh, thanks, Jim, for the introduction. Um, thanks for having us here. Um, thanks for coming. So uh, I tend to talk a lot and not to be very focused. So I have 20 minutes and I have to describe a book uh, took us a few years to write, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to make an exception. Let me try to do it by giving uh, a broad view of what we do in the book following the chapters. These, uh, the two authors are both uh, <clears throat> economists, but of the bad variety. That is, we tend to like theory and math and those kind of things that people disparage and models. And we got to the conclusion we advanced in the book, actually, from very far away research about innovation and growth theory. And once we got to the conclusion a few years ago, we said, this doesn't make sense. We've got to redo it all over again because 
getting to the implication, the patents and copyright are not necessarily a good idea. For somebody trained in economics since at least 1950s, I'm not that old, but I mean, after that, uh, it, it's like a major, it's a blasphemy, it's completely crazy. So uh, uh, we were somewhat surprised of our own ideas, we didn't believe it for a while. And in fact, what we did, which started uh, to motivate us to write the book uh, in a hopefully non-technical and uh, understandable by educated people style, was to look at data, something that neither David nor I have a big passion for. We do it, but always through the research assistant, never directly. And, uh, and so what we did was to look at it directly. And so the book actually starts from there. And the way we looked at data was uh, to look to go back in history to before and after and try to look for situations where patents were there, were not there, uh, copyright was there, was not there, and so on, and ask what happened uh, uh, to innovation in those periods. And so what we document at the beginning is something that, as we kept reading and looking around, uh, somewhat shocked us too, that is, there's plenty of innovation out there still today, but also, and in particular in the past, uh, without that particular instrument, that, uh, that particular distribution of property rights that we call intellectual property. Let me make clear, when we say intellectual property, even intellectual property legislation is a bigger thing than just patent and, and copyright, even if patent and copyrights are at the bulk of it. Uh, we have very little concern with things like trademarks. Uh, I know that for some people out there in the political fringe, it's a, it's a very hot, uh, fascinating topic that allows you to sell other books uh, 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 a lot more copies than this, I suppose, but we don't find it very interesting spending a lot of time debating if Armani has the right to call his stuff Armani or not. Um, I, mean, I call my stuff Baldrin, and I think it's, it's about my same rights to call his stuff with his name or whatever nickname he decides to adopt. So we have no much to say about trademarks. It seems a pretty reasonable uh, uh, thing to do. If then it makes sense to have... Uh, international wars on anybody that uses something that looks like a strange check mark uh, because it resembles Nikes, that's, um, that's something I don't really have an opinion. So it's about copyright and, and patents. So the first thing we try to do is to document the enormous amount of innovation that takes place in industries and in, and in, and in countries and in centuries where there is no intellectual property in that sense. And this surprised us, uh, surprised us not only because it happened substantially in the past, but because it's happening quite substantially in the present uh, in a variety of industries. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> uh, mention them all, otherwise I will uh, uh, not respect the 20 minutes limit that I, I want to impose on myself. I'm sure that Rob will have to say something about software, which is obviously one of those in which we point our fingers uh, for the present through the open source initiative and in particular uh, the origin of software and, and uh, software development in the 70s and the 80s before uh, uh, copyright started to be uh, seriously used in the industry and patent were then adopted. But I'm thinking at economic innovation in uh, uh, industries where we don't see what happened as innovation and instead it is. So one of my preferred examples uh, is, we even have a picture in the book, uh, is the development of uh, greenhouse agriculture in the southern part of Spain, which really fascinated us as a 
kind of first-hand experience. So you might uh, be familiar with the so-called spaghetti western, Clint Eastwood initial thing, fistful of dollar and so on. So those have been, uh, were not shot in the Arizona or Utah desert where they're supposed to be. They were actually shot in a province of southern Spain called Almeria, which at the time in the 60s was so poor and desert that it made perfectly well for a desert. It was by far the poorest province of Almeria. Shortly, uh, there is a picture uh, in the book, and you can find it in the NASA um, uh, NASA uh, satellite site, which shows Almeria in the early 70s, and in this desert thing, which there is pretty much nothing. Uh, at about that time, uh, people there realized uh, that uh, uh, in the nearby region of Murcia, there was a tradition of uh, horticultural, uh, you know, vegetables and, and, uh, and expensive fruits uh, growth, and started to adopt it. And this led to an explosion of innovation of different techniques with which you can grow strawberries and zucchini and carrots and, and, and all kinds of things. The climate is particularly adapted. Uh, um, they, they started to irrigate and uh, adopted various greenhouse uh, techniques. The point is that in the space of 20 years, by sheer imitation, were extremely poor farmers most, uh, most of this. Uh, the thing has developed to transform Almeria in one of the richest provinces of Spain. In fact, probably the most, uh, according to, to, to what I know, the most productive and efficient uh, form of uh, small-scale uh, agriculture, horticultural uh, act, uh, economic activity in the world. And if you look now, we report the second picture uh, taken, I think, in 1994 from the satellite. It's impressive. What before was a yellow-green desert, it's now white. It's white because it's all greenhouses. And the income per capita is... By, by far above the, uh, the European average and so on. And the thing that is interesting there, I had the fortune to go there and, and, and learn about this uh, firsthand because a friend was the son of one of these uh, uh, farmers uh, that, that started the whole enterprise in the late 70s, early 80s, is that, that this was a classical case of open source in the sense that nobody pretty much patterned anything, and everybody imitated everybody else on the type of products, the way of growing it, the, the various techniques, how, uh, what greenhouse to use, what ground not to use, how to market it, which markets to go, and so on. And the example of this type are obviously extremely abundant. In the, in the book, we, we report many, the, the Cornish engine, the steam power engine developed in, in England <clears throat> in the early part of the 19th century, the textile cotton industry in Japan, and so on and so forth. The, the, Benetton and the old Italian uh, uh, sweater, sport equipment and so on, uh, ski equipment industry from the area actually I come from. I'm originally from Venice, Italy, is another example like that. So that's the the, the part uh, at the beginning which established something which to most people is obvious, but to economists trained in the traditional view is absolutely impossible. And that's... The second part we take on in the book, which says, well, these things do exist. This thing has happened. Have happened. Uh, there's a, uh, an enormous amount of facts out there that shows that there is thriving innovation uh, without any form of intellectual property. And, in fact, that the thriving innovation in most cases tend also to be a way of implementing what people would call trickle-down economics. That is, that it tends to create a lot of competition. It tends to result in relatively small companies competing with each other, and it tends to prevent the creation of dominant position. So 
So we go back to the economic theory. It says, why is that that economists, in fact, use models, which is the interesting thing, in which it would be impossible for these things to happen. That's the second part. And if you want, it's the part of the book and of our research that has most irritated our colleagues. I'm not going to say that uh, our position the last few years has been seen uh, very sympathetically by uh, established uh, uh, academic circle. We have been seen as being a couple of nuts, together with other nuts, thanks, Lord, so we didn't feel alone, and other people have joined, so we feel less and less nuts. But there is no doubt, uh, I remember my friend, well, I won't say his name, but he has a Nobel Prize, uh, about five or six years ago in a corridor conversation, he had gone through a draft of the book. He says, so, Michele, can I summarize... Um, the theory you and David have, I says, sure, sure, go ahead. He says, property is theft. Is that uh, what you guys mean? I says, whoa, <laughs> we're starting on the right foot. This is going to be an interesting conversation. So the, I'm not going to bother you. Maybe in the debate we can go through why. But the standard model is completely unable to predict uh, that this thing exists. The, the standard model that economists use to argue for the, the social value of patents and, and copyright actually said that we should not see innovation. Uh, if there are no patents, or if there is no copyright. And so part of the book that probably people may find boring is trying to ask what is the logical mistake there, or the factual mistake? What are the assumptions wrong? What are the assumptions right? And is there something in the toolbook of economists that one can use to understand this phenomenon, the fact that there is you know, things like open source? Um, very interesting. I, mean, uh, I think the first decent model of our open source industry is by a student of mine that just got a job last year at Harvard Business School that worked on it. Before, economists were looking at open source as a form of charity, as if the people that are doing open source software are into, you know, gift giving. You know, they just do it because they're nice. They in a kind of generalized Mother Teresa of uh, programming. Uh, that was, that was the, the established view and the way the model so a, a complete absence of that. What's the basic, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, mistake that uh, economists do when they look at innovation and conclude that without patents there is no innovation? It's a mistake that goes back, interestingly enough, to Ken Arrow, in my opinion, in a fundamental writing in the 60s, that interestingly enough he wrote to not to support monopoly and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and patents per se, but in fact to support... Uh, expansion of NSF and uh, public funding of basic research in general. Further proof that it's not good to do uh, scientific research working backward, that it's working for the conclusion to the, the more that justify it you want to do. So the argument that can uh, uh, adv advance at the time and then has been adopted uh, repeatedly by everybody is that ideas are like public goods. So the set of the sequences and innovation is essentially a new idea or an idea that nobody had thought of or conceived before. An idea, once you have it, it's very easy to imitate and, and, and copy and, and, and reproduce. And it's a public good in the sense, technically, that we talk about a public good, as a good that many people can consume simultaneously without you consuming it, diminishing my ability of consuming it. Okay? And because it is a public good, once it is introduced by someone, whoever that someone is, everybody will copy and take advantage of it, and the someone will lose the opportunity of uh, profiting from, from, from its investment. 
so where is in this so this sounds very logical right and it, it's a typical argument that everybody brings up when you talk about patterns so where is that there is something there that goes wrong the logical argument per se is not wrong the logical argument seems correct but then you sit down for a moment and you wonder uh, one of the proponents the modern proponents of this in a very strong form as you probably know is Paul Romer Paul Romer, Paul Romer happened to be my teacher actually when I, uh, I was a graduate student. And I kept asking Paul, I said, Paul, if it is true that ideas are public goods and they're so easily copied and adopted once invented, and whoever has them for first or maybe second or third cannot really benefit economically in a monetary form, cannot get compensated for that. Why are you being paid so much to teach me old stuff? And why am I going to be paid so well starting next year or two years from now uh, for teaching stuff that Adam Smith wrote 200 plus years ago, Ken wrote 70 years ago, other people wrote, you know, why are we even benefiting from teaching kids calculus, for Christ's sake, that has been around for centuries? So why is all these simple free Every time uh, used idea are out there that have been discovered and rediscovered and really rediscovered uh, dozens of times, still there are people like us that earn really good salaries from repeating old ideas. And when you think of that, I never got an answer from, from Paul about that. Neither I got an answer from him of why, in spite of the fact that he has dozens of uh, uh, Italian cookbooks that he has been experimenting with, and I have known my result is better than his. Uh, but, 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 but the point there is to understand what? The point there to understand is that ideas in the abstract, in the platonic sense, are certainly public good. In fact, there are tons of ideas out there that we have not yet invented or discovered or figured. I don't want to get into the philosophy if we discover the idea or invent them if we find them or we create them, but they have no economic value. Those are certainly public good. The fact that I know that 2 plus 2 is 4 does not prevent <clears throat> Jim to know when 2 plus 2 is 4 or anybody here to know that and use that 2 plus 2 is 4. The problem is that what has economic value is not the abstract idea that 2 plus 2 is 4, it's the fact that you know that 2 plus 2 is 4. And that typically takes time to learn, apprehend, and make usable. The idea that has economic value is the idea that lives here. And that's a copy of that. The only copy of ideas that live in the brain of people or live in machines or, or, you know, or tools, physical objects that have been built, have actually economic value. The abstract ideas have absolutely no economic value. It's sitting out there and nobody uses it. But then once you go to there and you understand that it's the concrete physical idea embodied either in the brain or in the machine that has economic value, then you realize that those are very, very private good and they're not public good at all. In fact, a typical example is that my cup of coffee is a much more public good than my own ideas. Probably a cup of coffee you can steal with a bit of speed from me. My idea, you've got to torture me if I don't want to reveal it for you, to you voluntarily. And, and then when you start thinking at innovations in practice, you realize that that's the big problem. The big problem in most cases is that while it is true that you can look at what somebody does and try to imitate, that process, it's not true that it's costless. It's costly. It's very costly. It's costly because the more sophisticated is the idea that this person is using, the more background you need to have developed and accumulated, the more knowledge you need to have accumulated. 
And because in any case, the pure fact of observing, imitating, and trial and error, getting to the point where that person is, is a costly activity. And part of that activity, we can go through example, ends up paying the original owner of the idea for having, for having done it. So it provides him, him or her with the reward. Once you start from there, you realize on the one hand, and here uh, that allows us to get to the third part of the book, which is mostly policy, that the standard position is essentially using an extreme version of the model. But the problem is that the extreme version of the model, it's too abstract. It's too much of an economist model. It's too abstract. And yes, it's good to make abstractions sometimes, but it better be true that the conclusion you reach with the abstraction are actually robust to small perturbation. And that's not what happened in the case, because in the, in the case of the, of the standard view about patents and innovation. The standard view, the cost of me imitating Jim, because he had some idea of some nice business practice or he, he came up with new good, is zero. Now, in practice, that's never true. And in practice, it's just smaller than his. Now you say, well, what's the difference? You know, it's a good abstraction. You say, make it zero. It's so much smaller than his. No, because in practice, that makes all the difference. Because sometimes that smaller, it's not so small. And in very many different circumstances, because it's smaller but positive, it, allow, it, it implies time and investment resources on my part that allows Jim, the initial innovator, to extract enough rents from his innovation to compensate for the fixed cost, which is essentially what we try to discuss in the third part of the book. And the third part of the book, uh, as I said, is mostly about policy and, and uh, uh, current situation, uh, current legislation, and so on. And we focus in particular on the pharmaceutical industry because we find it uh, more challenging, if you want, from our point of view. It's the typical example people bring up every time you, you talk about not having part. And they say, yeah, yeah no, it's fine for you know, machinery or numerical control things, but medicine, think about medicine. How would you have all these beautiful medicines without patent? So we focus a bit on that in, in the debate we can go over. And the point we, we, we try to make there is once you use a different formal approach to the problem, you throw away this, this idea that idea, new idea, innovation are public good. And you start from the fact that what matters is what's embodied in your brain, what's embodied in the machine, in the plant, in the factory, in the business practice. And what your competitors have to do, it's either to buy stuff from you and pay you for, for the right of imitating or spend time and resources to imitate and learn from what you do, maybe without paying you, but, but still investing resources. Then you start to ask, how long should a patent be to allow a person to have an incentive to innovate? And then you realize that the proper way in which you want to think of the problem is the following. Yes, uh, some innovation, all innovation in some sense, some more, some less, have some kind of fixed cost, as academic economists call it, upfront. You've got to pay some amount upfront in order to come up with a new thing. And it may be that if imitators are very quick at imitating and, and coming in and expanding capacity, you don't have time to recoup that fixed cost. But that's an empirical problem. It's a matter of particular circumstances. It's a matter of particular cases. It's a matter of numbers. It's not true in general. It's quite evident in general that the time it takes to imitators to come up and imitate you is long enough the most innovators actually get compensated for their fixed cost up front without the patent. Uh, 
So what you want to conceive of is of a patent legislation, the property, uh, intellectual property legislation, that is completely the opposite. It's founded on a complete opposite principle than the one we're using now. The one we're using now is a principle that says, as long as you can vaguely convince the patent office that it satisfies the three criteria, it's yours and you have a patent, period with pretty much a uniform length and with variations and exemption for, for particular products such as pharmaceutical. So the burden of the proof is completely, <clears throat> if you want, on the, on the government, on the, on the patent office, to find argument to deny the patent. If you take the point of view and what we think is the appropriate economic model of the way innovation works, the burden of the proof should be on the person seeking the patent. In the same way that we are capable of regulating, say, electric utilities and other kind of utilities by asking them to provide us evidence of their cost structure and their <clears throat> revenue structure and then deciding uh, in a kind of bargaining uh, relation with all the limits and, 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 and the complications that there is, but in a not-so-crazy uh, form, what the proper price should be and, and, and how we regulate those prices, the same method can be applied to patent and, and copyrights. The burden of the proof is on the person seek, or the company seeking the patent to prove that without a patent protection of X years, the cost being incurred and the natural and the market return on the investment made would not be recouped. And because imitators would come in too quickly because they, they, they would be copying us because of this, because of that, because this particular investment is particularly large and the good we're producing is particularly useful. So the, the, the final conclusion we reach is that uh, kind of uh, uh, re repeating uh, what Fritz Maklup uh, argued about 50 years ago, that is true, if the patent system was not there, maybe we should never introduce it. But given that it's there, and it's therefore somewhat common sense, thinking that no, you cannot argue that you can abolish it from, the, from night to morning, from evening to morning. But what you can do, certainly, is to start asking for a complete reversal of the burden of proof. Because the argument that once you look at the economic data and the economic fact, clearly you realize the most, most innovations would have been there even without the patent protection. And therefore, adding the patent protection or the copyright protection on top of them, all that it does is to create a monopoly power. It doesn't benefit the consumer. It doesn't benefit the society. It doesn't increase the rate of innovation. It simply allows someone to earn monopoly profit over and above their opportunity cost that would have motivated them to innovate in any case. And to the extent that that's true, then it seems reasonable to ask for a reversal of the argument. Okay, you think that you really would not be able to do that, you could not contribute this great medicine to society if we don't give you the patent, show us the numbers. If you show us the number, then we can also sit down and figure out that you deserve a patent for five years, seven years, 17 years. Now one can say, well, but this is an extremely uh, uh, cumbersome procedure. How would the patent office do? Well, it's very simple. The patent office is actually a very lar large office with a large number of people working in it. I'm not sure they're all uh, as competent as they should be, but certainly there's a very large number of people working in it. Right now they're overwhelmed because everybody that has any idea of any kind sends an application and asks for a patent. You never know. One day this may turn, uh, turn out useful. Well, in the moment in which you reverse the burden, you understand that the number of applications would drop by 
more than an order of magnitude, and the few, probably in the order of hundreds of thousands, no more a year, uh, uh, patent applications that have relevance and that could be argued uh, on, 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 uh, on serious data that to, be, to, be, to be grounded, would, you know, that, that there would be the resources to, uh, uh, to handle that. So the, the last part, uh, I mean, there are other things that, 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 that we discussed there, in particular uh, we, in respect to international relations, WTO, uh, trips, and so on. But I would say the basic, uh, the basic political message or policy message that we are sending is that there is a sense in which if you look at the process of innovation as it happens for real out there, uh, there is a road, a slow road, but, but a very well-defined road that can lead us to lower the current level of, uh, of intellectual property protection that we think to be damaging. There is a chapter also about the damages uh, and, 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 and the social negative consequences of intellectual property protection. And that, you know, the, 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 if you want the extreme stylized position that we take in the book, which is abolish intellectual property, period, is more a reference point or, or uh, again, an abstract model that we like to use to organize our thought than know what has to be done tomorrow. I think I have consumed my 20 minutes abundantly. Thanks. Thank you. All right, well, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm always in, uh, pleased when Jim asked me to do anything because uh, I think we probably – disagree with each other uh, at least 55% of the time. So, uh, 51. Disagree with that, see? So there you go. <laughs> uh, so, I'm really pleased to be here. As I said, um, you know, it's interesting to sort of watch uh, de intellectual debates on the right. Um, it's because the left has, you know, so many more. They're just always arguing with each other. The, the right, oftentimes, people think of as a sort of unified behemoth that always agrees on a core set of principles around liberty and freedom, and therefore, that's why they're at least until November 4th, were so effective. Um, but it, it struck me a while ago when I was looking at trade policy and currency, and I was really struck by how could what I thought were really strong economic libertarians have any defense that it was okay for other countries to manipulate the price of currency. And I realized that the answer was because they put property rights ahead of freedom and therefore the property rights being of holders of U.S. currency who would see their property devalued if foreign countries uh, dealt with their currency the right way they should. And it seems to me this is the same issue here we have today. We have a set of people, certainly on the right and the left, who are strong proponents of uh, copyright and, and, and intellectual property protection and patents. But um, as Michelle points out and, and makes a compelling uh, makes a case for, I won't say it's compelling, makes a case for, uh, there's another strand on the right, which is that freedom really should trump property. Uh, I think uh, what I like about the book is um, he's certainly right to point out a number of problems in the patent and copyright system. Other people have done that as well. Uh, certainly he points out the issue of patent trolls in the RIM case, uh, Pat problems of overly broad patents. Uh, no book on patents would be complete without the case of the uh, patenting the crustless sandwich. Uh, so he talks about that. Uh, patenting one-click, shopping carts, all of these things which everybody more or less can agree on are abuses, uh, failures, cases for reform. And if that's all the book did, I'd be the first to say you should all read this book because we're strong proponents of intellectual property reform as well. We have a 
paper out there on patent reform, which we had hoped Congress would finally pass, but they have not. Uh, but I don't think that's what this is about. This is not about reform. Uh, Michelle, at the end, talks about uh, some ideas for reform, which I think maybe I was missing that point. I didn't see that in the book. What I did see in the book was a uh, statement of abolition. So let me quote from page 264. Intellectual property is a cancer. The goal must be not merely to make the cancer more benign, but ultimately to get rid of it entirely. And I give him and his co-author credit um, in the sense of consistency. So if you think IP, if you think intellectual monopoly is the problem, there are certainly many more kinds of intellectual monopoly than just the kinds that come from legally protected kinds like patent and trademark. Uh, there are kinds that come from companies just inventing something and having a trade secret or other kinds where they essentially have a de facto intellectual monopoly that allows them to have, quote, market power. And I give Michelle and his co-author credit. They actually, at the back of the book, say if they could figure out a way to do it, they would actually mandate that companies give away all plans, uh, designs, and everything else when they first come to market. So there would be no source code restrictions on any software. There would be no kinds of private uh, patents or trade secrets. All of that would be put in the open. Now, they acknowledge that would have some serious problems of implementation, but intellectually they support it. So I think it's one thing, as I said, to make a case for reform. It's quite another to make a case for abolition, which is what they set, propose, and that's where I have to say I strongly disagree with this book. They, uh, in fact, cite a letter about, written by 17 leading economists on IP who, who state, quote, a trade-off exists between restrictions on the use of existing ideas and rewards to inventive activity. And that's absolutely right, and that is the conventional wisdom, and it happens to be right. that This is about trade-offs. I don't think anybody, or very few people certainly would argue on the opposite side that there are no downsides to IP protection. But I'm surprised that people will argue that there are no upsides or that the upsides are completely overshadowed. Uh, UC Berkeley professor Bronwyn Hall, who writes extensively about innovation, including in the patent system, uh, states, quote, patents create short-term monopolies which may become long-term in network industries, but they also facilitate the entry of new and small firms with limited assets. Patents also impede, may impede the combination of new ideas and inventions, uh, but they also create an incentive for R&D and innovative investments. And that's absolutely right. So the key is to figure out how do you get the right balance in the copyright system and the patent system. Let me s- go over four or five areas where I really think the authors miss the point. Uh, and w- one is that they don't really ever dig into how innovation occurs. It's, it's sort of the conventional neoclassical model of innovation is in a black box, as Nate Rosenberg once called it. Uh, they state, for example, quote, new ideas occur almost by chance. Uh, it may be that certain innovations like the 3M Post-it note occurred by chance, But the R&D that 3M was doing and the $200 million in R&D that U.S. companies do, they don't just sort of do that by chance. Certainly, by chance, things come out of that R&D. But the investment that companies make in R&D, they're doing it for one reason and one reason only, and that's to make a return. So it's not just simply to say that things happen by chance. Maybe things happened 200 years ago by chance. But today, as Schumpeter noted in the, when he wrote in the 40s, the innovation system is much more organized, systematic, and expensive. 
secondly, he, I think w one of the key points he mistakes he, the authors make is they overstate that, quote, there are many other ways that innovators are rewarded besides patents or uh, copyright protection. Uh, I'm hard-pressed to see that uh, in terms of the cases they make. For example, they say, quote, it is possible that if copyright disappears and people can use Associated Press stories without paying them, that Reuters and AP would be financially healthy. Uh, given the fact that AP is, and Reuters are not financially healthy right now when there's copyright protection and they're struggling to even survive as a business, it's not clear to me how taking that away and letting any newspaper use that information uh, would lead them to be financially healthy. Uh, no book on attacking IP would be complete unless it had the requisite musicians will get paid by T-shirt sales. Uh, this is in there as well. Um, I did buy a T-shirt at the Van Morrison concert out at the George Mason Center last year, but I don't think it was enough to support his tour. The third is the, the fallacy of the ability to make money before other people copy. This is really when you get down to the bottom line of the book. This is the bottom line of the book. You don't need protections because you make all your money on that curve and that all the money's made very quickly before anybody could copy. Uh, they state, uh, quote, the presence of large initial rents are the carrots for innovators to innovate. And as uh, Michelle said in his comments here, as well as many times in the book, this is an empirical question. Uh, it may be an empirical question, but it is certainly not dealt with empirically in the book. There's almost no evidence in terms of, by that I mean numbers, that would lead one to be able to uh, validate or rebut that point. I would argue that that's actually just completely backwards now. Uh, the ability to copyright, copy excuse me, is much faster now than it ever has been in world history. So the ability to get all your rents very quickly is diminishing very quickly. I was in India about two years ago. Uh, giving some talks, and I talked to a drug maker over there who told me that it was not uncommon for American drugs to be in the Indian generic market less than two months after they entered the U.S. market. And I want to see the data of this. This is an outright lie. I actually know the India pharmaceutical market pretty well. Four years. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's about as much of a claim as you have in your book. No, no, uh, there are data there. No, 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 no. There are data I, and references. There are data I and references. Or you footnote There are data that. and references that are very footnoted. Now, the, uh, the other one that always gets me, if anybody, anybody can plan to go see James Bond movie this weekend, uh, Quantum of Solace, Patrick, you're a dupe. Uh, do not do it. I know that. Uh, uh, you can go on Pirate Bay, at least on Friday, you could go on Pirate Bay and download a full length copy of Quantum of Solace. Why, I don't know who makes this movie, uh, Fox or somebody, why would they make that movie if you can go online and do this? And the reason they do is because most people don't use Pirate Bay because they, had, they know it's illegal. But if you completely shifted this and said, by the way, it's now legal for you to go get that, why would you buy a DVD? By the way, which is where most movie companies make most of their money. Um, the other point the authors make is they say, quote, if the price falls to zero, revenue will grow to infinity because many more units are sold, unquote. Uh, it seems to me if price falls to zero, then revenue is zero. This is to me sort of like the business model that says we lose $10 on every unit we sell, but we make it up on volume. Uh, so... The other piece of this, which is a kind of key, if you sort of get into the economics of this, a key argument or key support of their argument is that essentially 
there are no spillovers for innovation. And they state um, that there is, quote, little evidence of spillovers. Now, uh, given the fact that you look at the literature on innovation, uh, you could cite hundreds and hundreds of articles that document spillovers. A uh, very famous study of the CAT machine, the computer, what, a computer-aided tomography, the CAT scanning machine, incredibly large spillovers that the innovator didn't get. Uh, the transistor at AT&T, incredibly large spillovers. So I just don't really, uh, I just don't sort of get the intellectual piece of this. It sort of reminds me of the economics joke of, you know, it works in practice, but will it work in theory? Uh, this is one of those cases where it, it doesn't work in practice or theory, uh, two more main issues. One is I, I, the authors don't really distinguish between industries, and there's no question that the authors are right that there are many, many industries, and the ones they cite, just to give you a few, uh, restaurants, clothing stores, uh, greenhouses, as we heard this morning, don't use patents to protect or copyrights to protect their intellectual property. Absolutely true. Uh, but many industries do. And so to sort of lump some industries together with others, I think really misses the point. They refer uh, extensively to the Carnegie study, which is the Carnegie Mellon study, and use it, I think, in a fair amount to make a key point that they're trying to make, which is that companies don't use patents as a form of protecting their property. In fact, according to the Carnegie Mellon study, one-third of industries rank patents as first or second most effective strategy. This is a significant, or I shouldn't say significant, a modest increase from the 83 Yale study that surveyed companies on the same thing. They then go on to say the fact that 96% of respondents, these are corporations asked about their IP protection strategies, said that they use patenting to prevent copying. Okay, so 96% of companies use patenting to protect copying as evidence that patents simply preserve monopoly. I don't interpret that answer as evidence of that. I interpret it as evidence of they're using it to prevent copying. The real question to ask is, does preventing copying lead them to get more revenue and therefore do more innovation? That's the question, not does it lead to monopoly. In fact, the authors of the Carnegie study that they cite says, quote, unquote, quote, positive effects of patenting, so, quote, says there are positive effects of patenting on R&D overall, even in semiconductors where patents are much less effective than other mechanisms. So the Carnegie study that's a key part of this book. The authors themselves admit that patenting is critical. How am I doing on time? Okay. A couple more minutes. So where, where does this all get us? I think it gets us to this fundamental sort of a, uh, philosophical uh, argument about what's more important. Uh, I would uh, surmise to bet, given what I've read of the book, that the authors are what I would call neoclassical economists. Uh, if you want to look at an interesting site where we sort of go into all that, it's innovationeconomics.org, where you can actually go to a site and take this test, 20 questions, it's called Find Your Economic Type, and at the end it'll tell you whether you're a neoclassical economist or a Schumpeterian economist. Or you could be a Keynesian, but I don't assume there are any Keynesians here. Excuse uh, yourselves if you are. Yeah. <laughs> you can leave. So the real question is, if you're a neoclassical economist, what's most important to you? And in neoclassical economics, the most important thing is what they call allocation efficiency. So it's basically making sure that things are allocated in the marketplace according to the right signals. If you're a Schumpeterian economist or innovation economist, 
you don't really care about that. I mean, Schumpeter has sort of withering quotes against uh, sort of why you would care about that. And what you care about is really innovation and productivity. So in many ways, it's a, it's an, it is an empirical question whether the inefficiency, the allocation inefficiency that you get from intellectual monopoly is a greater cost than the benefits you get from innovation and productivity. Uh, the authors basically will state, do state in the paper, in the book, very, very, many, many times they state this, that if you got rid of IP protection in copyright and patent, you would have fewer innovations. Now, they basically say they're willing to live with that because they think the cost of this monopoly pricing is greater than the cost from innovations, losing the innovations. Given, and he, uh, Michelle alluded to Paul Romer, although you do mischaracterize endogenous growth theory in many, many cases. Uh, you say, for example, new growth says in information does not flow freely and can be operated. I mean, that's actually, in, new growth says innovation, information can, does not flow freely. But given that new growth theory or Schumpeterian economics says that around 80% of growth comes from innovation, uh, it seems to me a fairly risky proposition to say you're willing to throw that overboard. Um, last piece is just, I, there are a whole set of mistakes, I think, or I'll call them mistakes, really, about characterizing technology or the information technology industry. The authors state, for example, that uh, Microsoft, quote, Microsoft made little effort, either legal or technical, to protect its IP in their early creative days. Uh, yet, as early, we're talking about Wikipedia, if you go to Wikipedia, you can find this nice article there. As early as 1976, Bill Gates sent a letter. This was long before Microsoft was formed. He sent an open letter to hobbyists who were copying his Altair basic paper tape. So he had this Altair tape, a piece of paper, and he brought it to a meeting. Turns out some guys copied it, and they made 90 copies of it. Uh, he sent an open letter saying that without, quote, without good software, an owner who understands programming, a hobby computer is waste. Will quality software be written with the, for the hobby market without protection? Uh, the, author goes on, the authors go on to say uh, another, what I think, mistake. Quote, the reason for pirated music is people don't like RIAA and legal music is encrypted. I don't think anybody goes to the Pirate Bay to download music as a sign of protest against RIAA. And for music not being, being encrypted, if you go to the Amazon site, you can buy MP3 files that are unencrypted. Amazon, excuse me, Apple has a copy protection scheme to make it go with the iPod, but many, many other sites sell open, uh, unencrypted music. Uh, new products are costly to reverse engineer. Again, this is an empirical question, but what's interesting to me is there's no evidence in the book to make that point. All the evidence I've seen suggests this the opposite, that IT is making reverse engineering much, much easier and much, much cheaper. For example, uh, the ability to do um, basically laser-generated modeling, you take a laser and you scan a product, has reduced the cost of copying an automobile door uh, by 15 to 30-fold. So if you're interested in copying somebody else's technology, you can do it much, much easier and much, much cheaper. Last point, and then I'll stop. Just some of the, some of the I think the book would have been a lot stronger without reverting uh, to uh, what I think are just unsubstantiated and, and frankly, inappropriate comments. Uh, the evil of intellectual monopoly. Uh, Hitler was an evil person. 
I'm not sure we want to put Hitler in the same category as IP. Uh, people who don't support copyright do not value facts. I guess that means I don't value facts. Uh, Supreme Court justices have an IQ of idiots. Uh, you can disagree with their, their, their position on Grokster. I don't know that any of the Supreme Court justices are not highly intelligent people. So at the end of the day, I would argue this is really all about putting freedom ahead of innovation. Uh, and since we're in the Hayek Auditorium, let me end with a quote from Frederick Hayek, uh, who summed up his view, uh, which is, quote, Personally, I would much prefer to have much prefer to have to put up with some inefficiency than have organized monopoly control my life. I wouldn't. I would actually much rather have high levels of efficiency and innovation and have a few monopolies out there. I don't, they don't control my life. So I think the real question is, what do we value here? Do we value freedom or do we value innovation and higher standards of living? And I would put my, uh, my, my vote on the latter. Thank you. Well, obviously, we'll have a, a great deal to work with. Um, before, I, I imagine you'd like to respond for a few, a, a few brief moments. I did want to point out, I learned a lot, obviously, as I did from reading the book. One of the things I learned is that um, the Spaghetti Westerns were filmed in Spain. I thought they were filmed in Italy. We, we, we learn a lot. I'm the kind of person who wears Bermuda shorts in Europe and you know, a T-shirt with a slogan on it. So I, have to, I, I do apologize. I, I used the Francophone version of Michele Boldrin's name when I introduced him, and, and I apologize for that. Um, I promise not to jump in the canal next time I'm in Venice, if that makes up for it. A response, though, if you, if you wish to... Uh, to uh, yeah, let me, let me try, because uh, Robert said so many things, and most of them are either not in the book or wrong, that I will know where to start. And So let me actually start with a, a two-methodological point. Frankly, on the issue of freedom versus property, I don't... I have any particular passion. I'm not going to get into that philosophical stuff. I'm not interested in it. So if you want to have it, we'll have it after <coughs> the debate, <coughs> having a couple, uh, couple coffee or something, but uh, I don't think that that's the basic of the book, point number one. Point number two, I think it's not, and, I, and I'm going to be very brutal about this, I think it's not a good practice to debate a book <coughs> by quipping small quotes some of them in, uh, actually without using the words that are there. The word idiot is never used in the book. Uh, and attributing it to the author's statement they've never made. Now, I wish I had the whole list of those you made because 90% of those arguments we just never made. Or, uh, you know, taking things out of context, short phrases of seven words and using them to ridicule an argument that you cannot instead uh, debate on substance, I don't find it a very interesting method. So let's start to go in order. First of all, let's start from the, the, the fundamental thing. Is there a contradiction between what we argue to be the need for abolishing fundamental intellectual property and the reform practice? Obviously not. There is a key word there, and if you go through the old chapter, you realize what we're arguing, which is ultimately. We're not completely from outer space. I understand perfectly that while I can think of a perfectly functioning market system with well-defined property rights and everybody happy and even a few monopolies to make profit if that is really what you care about uh, without intellectual property. I also understand that I'm not going to get there overnight even if in theory everybody agrees with me for the very simple reason that we have legal structure, companies, contract, 
kind of human capital, social arrangement, and so on, built up around the current system of intellectual property. And if you want to go through a transition, you go through a transition in a reason a slow way. So that's essentially uh, the point. So the, the thing I have argued or, uh, is one of the many things we suggest, and, uh, uh, and it's in some sense the, the, the simplest one, in the sense that it would immediately reveal in the moment in which you introduce that, in fact, <clears throat> the need for intellectual property protection in the form of patent copyrights to provide innovators with the return they need to motivate them to innovate is extremely lower than what's cur currently believed and argued, which is the key point of the book. So again, there's no misrepresentation or new growth theory in the book. New growth theory is founded like it or not, if you want, we can spend a couple of hours going through the sacred tests. Uh, I happen to have contributed to it, but so we can go through the sacred It's founded on the basic idea that ideas are free good. Paul drove me nuts in class about that. He's written extensively about that and so on and so forth. It's founded on that particular idea because without that, it just doesn't hold. It's a matter of logic and mathematics. Now, <clears throat> if that's the point... What we actually do on a pure academic uh, point of view is to do some good Schumpeterian economics. Because we really want to get into the academia. There are two Schumpeters, you see. There is a Schumpeter that got all scared by Stalin and got his brain <coughs> totally obsessed with socialism, the broad market, uh, uh, the broad uh, capitalist socialism and democracy. There is the Schumpeter that everybody quotes without having read that in the beginning of the, of the 20th century thought seriously about innovation and wrote the theory of economic development. In the theory of economic development, Schumpeter has a much more articulated and, and, and broad and sophisticated view of innovation, which is pretty much the same we adopt. And it's not based on the, on the, on the again, you know, the fact that at a certain point in the book we might point out that many innovations come by chance is by no means... <laughs> meant to say that all innovation come by chance or even the majority of innovation come by chance. That's not the issue. And neither is that the position of the initial Schumpeter. The initial Schumpeter nevertheless understands quite clearly that the key trade-off, and that's the part I agree with your discussion, but it's also the part that is understandable only if you use our model and not the new growth theory model. The key trade-off is between the cost of innovating and the cost of imitating. And that's an empirical question. And if there is something original in the book and in the literature that, that has grown in the last 10 years, uh, taking a critical uh, stance uh, respect to intellectual property, is that we are among the few people that have gone out and measured that trade-off. Because interesting enough, nobody had asked before the question. And the question is, how large are the fixed cost of innovation? How much monopoly power time, so to speak, how, how long should the patent be for you to recoup on those fixed costs what the market rate of return would be? That's the question that is typically not asked. That's the question only recently empirical uh, I.O. people have started to address. And I've started to address it exactly because approaches of, of our type has come out that says, look, there is a trade-off, we better measure it. Our reading, and we quote, there is a whole chapter dedicated, you know, this thing of characterizing, we bring no evidence. There is a whole chapter in which I think we survey in the order of 45 empirical papers. In fact, pretty much every empirical paper we'll be able to find either published on journals or on, the, on, 
on, uh, uh, online. And many of them are survey of other papers just to you know, save time, so to speak. Each one of them is probably another 40 papers. And we quote abundantly from those papers. Those papers are available. They're all available online. You just check the book. There is every single quotation as its, uh, uh, as its website where you can find. There is an, a single piece of empirical evidence by professional academics, I.O. people, that states that without patent, there will be no innovation. The quotation you take from... Uh, when we all are, 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 are again partial, uh, uh, and in particular, the question that everybody has been uh, going after is the following. What happens to the rate of innovation, to the rate of uh, productivity growth in a country after I strengthen intellectual property? And the answer is, on average, nothing. There is no hard empirical evidence of any kind that introducing or strengthening patent law increases the growth rate of productivity. It certainly increases the number of patents. Guess what? If that's the way in which you want to measure innovation, that is after introducing patents, then you have more patents than before. Sure. But anybody that has tried to measure labor productivity, capital productivity, objective measures of innovation has found a nice zip. And by the way, this goes back to a long tradition, which was unfortunately abandoned. George Stigler, we didn't know about this article. It was, a, it was an interesting discovery. Harold Dempsey pointed out to us after he, he saw the first draft of the book. He said, you know, guys, I remember George, George worked on that. George Stigler has a fairly unknown but splendid paper published in 1956. I think we quoted in the in the in, in the book, and it's available online from my site because the book is almost un, impossible to find. It took my librarian, you know, weeks to trace a copy, uh, in which he debates, in fact, the so-called Schumpeterian world that without patent there is no innovation, providing abundant theoretical and empirical evidence that, that was not the case. But then he does the one thing that very few people have done since, but when they do it, the result is amazing which is you go by industry, by small sector, you can go as low as you want uh, now with the four-digit classification and so on, and you measure growth rate of labor productivity in different sectors. And then you try to correlate those growth rate of labor productivity in different sectors to measures of patent protection, monopoly protection, intellectual property protection. And what do you find? You find a beautiful negative correlation. Is that an explanation of everything? No. But I said that the basic data says... There is absolutely no empirical evidence whatsoever, which is the old point of the book. And this, frankly, I don't think you should characterize the way you've done it because that's not what the book is about. The book is, in fact, there's even too much empirical evidence. There are too many quotations, too many references. If one does not have the time to read them, that's fine, but they're there. We obviously have uh, – we'll settle the debate about whether the word idiot appears in the book by you going and reading it, whether you buy it or, or download it. But let's get let's hey, Jim. Can I just respond two things briefly? Uh, you're right. I did take liberties on the word idiot, um, but you do say, uh, "quote We have a dramatic case of total IQs for the Supreme Court dropping to the double-digit level." So I equate idiot with an I, someone with an IQ of 14. Hang on a second. I shouldn't 99. I, shouldn't I take umbrage at that as no, a, no the total IQs. Total IQs. There are nine, what, nine Supreme Court judges? Oh, no, that's not what it's meant. But anyhow, uh, next point, though. All right, well, no, the Supreme Court is bought and paid for. Uh, I, I, haven't heard any, I haven't heard Justice Souter making his case that he was bought. 
Um, only other point I'd make, when, you, when I talk about empirical data, I'm not talking about studies of academics who quote other studies. I'm talking about actual empirical data, cost of copying. Last point, when you cite this, you said you, you, you in one of, your key, one of your chapters, you go through and look at all the scholarly work. What most of that scholarly work says, to the extent it is, to the extent some of it is critical of patenting, is that if you go up too far, you get negative returns. I don't disagree with that. If you're at a certain point, I would be happy to argue that patenting and copyright is a U-shaped curve. And when you get beyond it, strengthening doesn't get you much. But to somehow take all of these studies and make the case, is what you do, that they imply that going to zero boosts innovation as opposed to just coming down that curve a bit or going up the curve, I just I think you've misinterpreted what those studies say. Uh, uh, since we've, point, since we've settled all the issues here on the panel. No, no, this is important. Okay, so let me try to clarify this. No, so that's a good point. So it's a, it's a, it, it, that's what they call progress. So you do agree that there might be a U. I said that my, there my, might, my very opening my remarks. Said all right, very good. So that, well, I also agree. So it becomes an empirical issue to try to measure what happens near zero, correct? Sure. Very good. So I know very little done on that. But the few things I know, and I recommend this, is a beautiful book, guess what, by Frank Scherer, who used to be, before he looked at, the, at, at some of the data, a very strong supporter of patent copyright, and he's now a much weaker supporter, or I would say he's probably a mildly leaning, you know, opposer of patent copyrights on uh, the production of music. And there he looks at what happens around zero. That is before and after the copywriting of music. And his answer is zip. If anything happens, it goes negative. So let's get serious on the data. The data that we have so far do not show positive effect. You might be right. We might be on the you know, bad part of that kind of Laffer curve, so all we get is that we are on the bad part of the Laffer curve. Very good. Let's work on it, which is exactly our point. And let's try to figure out what the evidence says, what happens when we go on the other side of the, the Laffer curve, how steep it is. Our impression is that it's extremely steep. My impression is that for most industries, a two-year pattern, a six months of copyright would be plenty. Any questions from the audience? Got one down here. You mean we really didn't settle everything just now? Uh, thank you. I'm Ahmed <clears throat> Dean Ahmed from the Minaret of Freedom Institute. My question's for Professor Baldwin. Um, I, I think it would have been better if you had taken the harder case. Uh, you concentrated almost completely on patents. Since your main point is that the cost of imitation uh, – is, is the trade-off of the cost of imitation versus the cost of innovation, I would have rather have seen you dwell on the issue of copyrights, where I think it's uh, increasingly clear that the cost of imitation is extremely low. Yeah, but uh, that's the opposite. Copyright is, is, is an obvious thing that makes no sense. Because for the very simple reason, so there are two reasons, so let's try to figure out which copyrights you have in mind. Uh, there is, we actually talk about evidence. We collected our own evidence because there is no evidence on that, on book sales, book prices, and revenues, and so on. So the evidence there shows that most revenues for any book are made in the first six months. So you give a copyright length of a year as opposed to pretty much infinity, as it is now, right? Uh, and you're done as far as revenues are concerned. Second, the fact that reproducing and imitating has become cheaper 
is paralleled by the fact that producing has become cheaper. Producing high-quality music today costs orders of magnitude lower than it costed before. Distributing high-quality music costs orders of magnitude than before. It's not by chance the tower record shuts down. Right? Those very expensive distributing mechanisms that thrive on copyrights are going out. So the technology is cutting both ways. Third, there is a little detail that people don't seem to appreciate, which is what is the opportunity cost of your preferred rock group? That is, ask yourself, do you think really that we would stop having pop music if by any chance, if instead of making 20 millions, they'll make 200,000? I'm thinking, what would have Madonna done if she hadn't become Madonna from Maria Ciccone? Do you think that her opportunity cost was in the order of tens of millions of dollars? Do you think the opportunity cost of people that, as an alternative, I lived in Los Angeles for quite a while uh, when I was at UCLA, and I have a song living there, in fact, into that career. Do you think that the opportunity cost of your average musician, actor, or so on is so high? Well, typically, they serve you at bars and clean your table around the this, uh, uh, Sunset Boulevard in, in Los Angeles. So if we want to talk about copyright, it's actually slam dunk. A copyright terms of about a year would probably do. It would not do for Walt Disney that needs to keep recovering the rents that it extracts from Walt Disney invention of Mickey Mouse and for which the Supreme Court, which was bought and sold by, uh, 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 by Walt Disney Corporation, decided to extend uh, uh, copyright terms once again. But as far as the production of new uh, stuff is concerned, I have absolutely no doubt. Quickly, I'm not going to respond to everybody. You have to respond to this one. This is exactly the kind of evidence I would have liked to see in the book. 